0: Just looking at my Bible and I want to say a word about this Bible. I've had a defined King James Bible for a while um, and it's, it's what the be- blessing of is it is it has the old English words updated in it down below. Uh, but the blessed thing about my Bible uh, is that it is it's sold uh, under the banner of for weary eyes. Or, i.e., old fogies that can't see well. Uh, and so the, the, the black Bible, the defined Bible that I was using for many years, was starting to really fall apart. And uh, Mr. Kerr went to uh, the actual source in New Jersey to get a new one for me. And um, they don't print them anymore. But this one's very special because... And if it weren't for that, I wouldn't have gotten this. This is Betsy's Bible. And what a special thing. Um, and that too... Jim and I are both, we both, yours is smaller though, isn't it, Jim? Uh, Okay. (laughs) What a blessing though. Very, very special thing. So, in your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 14 and let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from verse 5 to verse 14 and then we'll remain standing for prayer. Romans chapter 14, beginning of verse 5 down to verse 14. The Bible says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died, and rose, and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. May God bless his word. Uh, Remain standing while we pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to publicly read the scriptures and then to be able to expound them. What a blessing. <clears throat> Father thank you for those that have come tonight. To sit under your word. And we just lift up the needs of our congregation. Uh, Lord folk, several folks have finished. Cancer treatment. And we just want to ask you to please. Continue to heal them. Bring them to complete recovery. Uh, and, and we just commit them to you. We also pray for Pat Sunino, uh, Father with, with the feeding two back. Uh, thank you that she's home. Pray that you just. Revive her, strengthen her body, and heal her. Pray for Joanne Tomkiewicz. I pray for Carl Dietz. And ask you to just sustain them and and strengthen them. Draw them near to you each and every moment. And Father, we want to again pray for Jason and Leah. And thank you for them. And we want to send them off, Lord, with your blessing. And ask you to prosper their steps. And open doors for housing and a church fellowship. And uh, just thank you, Lord, for them. I pray you just bless them abundantly. And uh, that over the years, we'd keep in touch and be able to hear of all the things, the blessings and answers to prayer. And Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to know them and have them and walk with them through this these last few years. Thank you for their faithfulness. And uh, Lord, we just commit them to you. And we ask your blessing now upon your word. And we thank you so much. In Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you, Talala, for your ministry on the instrument. And thank you, Jane, for your ministry on the instrument. All right, let's go back to Romans chapter 14. We're not going to start any series tonight. But in a sense, we are going to pick up on what we were talking about this morning. In a sense. Uh, This morning we talked about um, our responses. In the in the context uh, that how we respond shapes our worldview. Well, tonight we're going to look at our responses, but in a different way. In the fact that we are answerable for our responses. And I want to go back to an old doctrine uh, that is, uh, you know, there are certain characteristics, certain doctrines that um, other denominations share historically with, Baptists, uh, but there's one main doctrine that historically uh, really, really is is a primary. I mean, you look at it, and it's it's one of the hallmarks of Baptists down through the ages, and uh, it is individual soul liberty. See, that's the idea that each one of us are going to answer to God ourselves and that that's why you know baptists historically have never been the ones that have used force on others we've always been the receivers of force you know forcing us to believe this or believe that Uh, and we have basically and by the way understand this that not all baptists historically believe the same thing and some of them um, really technically weren't baptists uh, but the, uh, the doctrine of individual soul liberty is found here in Romans chapter 14. Reckons that each and every soul is going to have to give an answer to God for what they believe. And it is important that you and I recognize that. So tonight, three things we to not at. First of all, uh, under in, in fact, the title of the message isn't individual soul liberty. It's individual soul responsibility. So first, we are responsible for our actions. That's individual soul liberty. But then secondly, we are responsible for our actions no matter what others do. That's heart. And then thirdly, we are responsible for our actions no matter what what others should do. Okay? So we're going to stand before God. You are going to stand before God. And understand, you and I, we are going to give an account for our actions. And here's what's not going to happen at Judgment Day. And, and remember, for the Christian, we're talking about a different kind of judgment, right? We're talking about the idea of rewards or lack of rewards. But understand that on Judgment Day, however that's going to go, and, and praise the Lord, the sins are going to be under the blood. And... and We just fall back on that. But somehow, you know, Jesus said every idle word that that men say we're going to give an account thereof. Well, wait a minute. What about the words that would be clearly sin? They're going to be under the blood, right? Well, somehow, somehow we're going to answer for things. And here's what's not going to happen. Okay, we're standing before God. And he says, okay, August 28th, morning service at church. You said this to that person. Give an answer. and you and I are going to be going to, you and I are not going to be able to go, but you don't understand, Lord, that person said this to me. Oh no, we're not going to be able to do that. We are answerable for our actions, no matter what other people do or no matter what other people should do. And so we are going to talk tonight about individual soul responsibility. So let's just jump right in. And uh, we're looking at Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. And this is individual soul liberty. We're going to, we're going to revisit this. And I am going to share uh, Dr. Ketchum's quote that I say to you incessantly. And I don't apologize uh, because from I learned this in Bible school. And then I kind of just hadn't looked at it for a while. And many years went by and I came across... It was actually a GRBC Literature Item number 8. Uh, and this, this title is really going to intrigue you. You're going to hear this title and you're going to be like, I want to get that article and read it. Ready? Listen how exciting this is. Can a Baptist body define the requirements of its own membership without violating the sovereignty of the local church? Woo! Don't you want to get that and just sit by a fire and read it? I know, I'm, I'm being facetious. But I read it, and, the, and, and what Dr. Ketchum did is he just went back and reiterated what individual soul liberty was, and it was at a time when I needed to be reminded of it. And so I've said it often, and I hope I drill it in your heads, uh, because it's so important that you and I go back and understand. This is a Baptist doctrine, but it's a Bible doctrine. Here's, here's what Dr. Er, first look at Romans 14 and verse 5, and verse 12. Verse 5 and verse 12 really are the crux of what the teaching, the Bible teaching of individual soul liberty is all about. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let, you get that? Not force. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And then verse 12. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So here's what Dr. Ketchum said. He said, let us begin with the Baptist conception of the individual. And I would say this is also the Bible conception. We hold and teach the individual is sovereign in matters of faith. Baptists have spilled their blood in centuries past in support of the precious truth of soul liberty. One of the the famous and historic characteristics of Baptists is that they hold that the individual soul is answerable to Almighty God and to Him alone. Don't ever forget that. That comes to you, it applies to you, and it applies to the other guy as well. He says, there is no man or pope or priest or system or convention which can in any wise interpose anything. Interpose is to stand in between two things. Can interpose anything between a soul and its God. The individual must be left absolutely free. That's soul liberty. The individual must be left absolutely free to make his own decisions concerning God and all matters of faith. He may be helped by advice and information to arrive at a decision, but once he has formed his conclusion, they are his. His conclusions may be exactly opposite to that which his advice and information would logically demand, but he has a right to them, right or wrong. And no man or combination of men on earth has any right to force him to alter those conclusions. And historically, uh, we... And our, you know, Baptist history, Baptists in history have been the ones that have been forced. Many have lost their possessions, their property, and some their lives for this precious doctrine. And he says this is individual soul liberty. So first we need to understand what this means. This means that our focus has to be on ourselves. I am going to answer to God someday going to stand before God, each one of us, individually. That means your children are going to stand before God someday. You and I aren't going to be able to be there. Your parents are going to stand before God someday. So the whole idea of individual soul liberty means that you can't get saved for someone else. Now, historically, that's been misunderstood, uh, especially in understanding what the Bible teaches about how a person gets to heaven. Uh, Historically, there have been people, especially when it comes to baptism, there are people that have not understood the teaching of baptism, uh, and so therefore many parents have uh, had their children baptized and thought that, you know, I'm making a decision for my child, so now they're going to get to heaven. Uh, I remember a friend of mine getting saved. His background was the same as mine. He had a lot of kids. I think 400. No, not that many. But um, his younger kids, after he and his wife got saved, were not baptized in the church that he grew up in. And his parents were beside themselves because they're thinking, you got to be baptized to be saved. And... uh and one time they were babysitting and they snuck him off and got the little critter baptized. You know, it's sprinkled. And, that, you know, that is completely anti individual soul liberty. You know, but so understand. And, and it's all going to bring this up. Now, Charlie mentioned this a while back, and I've, we've said this, I've shared this a lot, but I love these two stories because they drive home the point that some doctrines are not made from. Bible exegesis, in other words, this is what the Bible says, but rather Bible exegesis, in other words, we're reading into it. One of the biggest passages of Scripture that have been used to teach something that isn't there is in Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. And it's been used to teach that babies are baptized. Let me read it to you. It's talking about Lydia. And, and In fact, in Acts 16, verse 14, Lydia clearly gets saved. The Lord opens her eyes. She believes on the things that are said, the, the gospel. So she, she clearly gets set, uh, saved. But then in verse 15, it says that she was baptized. And when she was baptized, and here's the three words that have resounded down in history, and her household. She besought us, and it goes on. So, so many people have read into that, that, okay, Lydia got baptized, therefore, and her whole household got baptized. So, probably there were infants there, bing, infant baptism. So here's the two stories. You you may remember them, and I love these. Uh, in case you've forgotten them, or I just want to remind you. The first uh, has to do with a country preacher debating uh, a Church of God fellow over infant baptism. The Church of God fellow said the first the first verse he takes is Acts sixteen five, which says Lydia was baptized and her household. That's the verse he used to defend infant baptism. The country preacher said to refute that I would use Job chapter one and verse one, which says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the Church of God preacher said. What in the world does that have to do with infant baptism? And the country preacher said, absolutely nothing, just like Acts 16, 15 has nothing to do with it. (laughs) I love that. How many of you have heard that before? No? Some of you forgot already? I've said this at least twice before. Were you sleeping? Okay, all right, some hands are going up. All right, next one I love because it's Spurgeon. Somebody came to Charles Spurgeon one time and wanted to debate him on infant baptism. Spurgeon agreed, and the man said, My first argument for infant baptism is Lydia. I suppose that Lydia had small children in the house at that time, and so that gives me ground for baptizing infants. Spurgeon said, Not so. The truth is that Lydia and her husband really only had one daughter. She was grown and was married to a shoe cobbler that was working out of Thyatira. They had just recently moved back to Philippi and opened a shoe store. They didn't have any children at the time and they're living with Lydia in order to get their feet on the ground financially. The other preacher said, where in the world did you get that? Spurgeon said, I supposed it just like you suppose she had infants in the house. You cannot read into the Bible what it does not say for itself. And those two examples Really drive it home, don't they? You know, The Bible doesn't say that. And so easy to read into something that we want it to say. But it doesn't. So, you and I are going to answer for our actions. Nobody else. We can't get saved. We can't believe. Uh, and you know, by the way, it's not that, that there's not the desire. Paul actually wished that he could be saved for someone else. You might remember him talking about the Israelites, the Jews and uh, And he said, in Romans nine verses two two and three, he said, "I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart." And listen to what he said. He said, "For I could wish, in other words, it can't happen. But he said, I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He said, I wish I could get saved for them." In fact, that's pretty amazing because he said, I'd be accursed. I'd give up my own salvation if I could do it for my kinsmen. But he said, I wish. You cannot get saved for anybody else. This whole idea of proxy baptism and baptismal regeneration uh, is a twisting and a distorting of scriptures. The Bible does not teach that. So we are answerable to God for our actions. We're responsible. By the way, it's interesting We talked about response this morning, and the word responsible and the word response come from the same root word. A response is a reply or an answer. Responsibility has two two definitions. Number one, it is the state of being accountable or answerable. And number two, it is the ability to answer in payment. So this is how the term responsibility originally started was it was You're responding to um, a payment or a means of paying a contract. So responsibility is a response to some obligation. So we are answerable. We are responsible just for ourselves. And then secondly, we are responsible for our actions no matter what others do. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter twenty. Hopefully this hopefully when you see what this is you'll get excited if you know what it is numbers chapter 20 Now really this I I maybe there's something weird with me but I I kind of relish in this story but it wasn't It wasn't Moses' best hour. But there's a lesson here that is huge. So, Numbers chapter 20 and verse 7. Here's his responsibility. Here's what God told uh, Moses. They're they're in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. They're now thirsty in the desert. They haven't had anything to drink. The people are complaining And now God tells, and Moses goes to the Lord and pleads on behalf of the people because of their complaining. Now look at verse 7, Numbers 27. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Now check this, got responsibility, we got a to-do list here. So Moses, here's your to-do list. Number one, take the rod. Number two, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother. Number three, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them the water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Okay, three points on the checklist, right? Pretty simple. So let's see what happens. Verse nine, and Moses took the rod, check, number one, from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation. Check. Number two taken care of. Together before the rock. And he said unto them. Oh, this sounds like number three, and it is. He said unto them. Remember, God said, speak. Well, he said, speak to the rock, right? He said, speak. Let me make sure. Did he say, speak to the rock? Speak to the rock. So now we have, and he said unto them. Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Do you think that was said like with a sweet, loving spirit like, Hey now, you rebels. No, this, he was furious, wasn't he? Because the people had been complaining and murmuring. And he has had it just about up to here, Right? And, and so what he does, he kind of follows the line. So he speaks to them, lays into them, and then he lifts up his hand, and, and with his rod, he smote the rock twice. Was that in the original instructions? No. Oh, come on now. He took the rod, he gathered the people, he went up to the rock, he said some words, Good enough. And, and look what happened. The end result was they got water, didn't they? I mean, look at it. It says, uh, and the water came out abundantly. So it did. The Bible says the congregation drank and their beasts also. Did he do what he should have done? No. In fact, just a little later in this reading... God calls him to task. And in fact, because of that one action, he forbade Moses from going into the promised land. He said, because you did not sanctify me before the people of Israel. Wow. Now, it's so easy for us as a human being. Can't you sympathize with Moses? I mean, come on. Have you not ever been frustrated by somebody else's sin or a group of people they let you down their sin affects you believe me their sin affected Moses he's listening to this all day long and and you think well isn't it in fact you could even argue this is righteous indignation because he's he's upset at their complaining and lack of faith and we know that God sympathizes with that so Wouldn't God give him a break? That's not the point. You see, you and I, no matter how frustrated we get, no matter how wrong someone else's actions are, we are responsible to respond properly. Moses was 100% obligated to do what God said. And if he had done that, he would have sanctified God before the people. God would have gotten all the glory. You know, the Bible says in in the New Testament, the wrath of man, uh, actually this might be in Proverbs, sorry. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Perfect example. He got in the flesh, he lost it, and God is not like, Moses, I totally get it. These people are exasperating. I got you." you. know, Hey, you basically followed it, they got the water, okay, let's move on. But he didn't. Because God takes very seriously for us to make a big deal about our obedience no matter what people around us are doing. Understand that. People can let you down. In fact, it's the people closest to us. Their sin, the, the one that makes is the most inconvenient for us, is the most frustrating for us. That's the one where we want to strike the rock. But God still holds us accountable. God gave Moses grace to respond properly. Sometimes we think that our job or our ability, that we can fix other people. And sometimes that's not why God has put that difficult person in your life, at least not at that moment. A lot of times God will put people in your life because he wants to teach you patience count it James says in James chapter 1 count it all joy when t- you fall into diverse temptations or trials knowing this that the trial of your faith worketh patience but let patience have her perfect work that's not easy to let patience have her perfect work Moses did and Moses by the way was the meekest man on the face of the earth you, you and I, would should say, we're doomed. You know, we're doomed. He's the meekest man on all the earth. And yet, he did not um, let patience have its perfect work. Here's another story I've shared with you, but I'm, I'm going to share it with you again. As a parent, I need to hear this, and I think other parents need to hear it too. We constantly need to be reminded of it. Plus, it sets the scene for a, something I want to share at the end of the message. And it's the story about Bill. You remember the story about Bill? Oh, yeah, Bill. Here's it. He says, The parents of a 25 year old man came to see me with a common request. They wanted me to fix their son Bill. Some of you remember that? Okay. When I asked where Bill was, they answered, Oh, he didn't want to come. Why? I asked. Well, he doesn't think he has a problem, they replied. Maybe he's right, I said to their surprise. Tell me about it. They recited a history. By the way, this is a Bible counselor, a spiritual counselor they're going to. I don't think a pastor. So they recited a history of problems that had begun at a very young age. Bill Bill had never been quite up to snuff in their eyes. In recent years, he had exhibited problems with drugs and an inability to stay in school and find a career. It was apparent that they loved their son very much and were heartbroken over the way he was living. They had tried everything they knew to get him to change and live a responsible life. Take note of that. They tried everything they knew. To get him to change and live a responsible life. Whose main job is it to change other people? God's. But all had failed. He was still using drugs, avoiding responsibility, and keeping questionable company. They told me that they had always given him everything he needed. He had plenty of money at school so he, quote-unquote, wouldn't have to work, and he'd have plenty of time for study and social life. When he flunked out of one school and stopped going to classes... They were more than happy to do everything they could to get him into another school where it might be better for him. After they talked for a while, I responded, and this is the part I love. I think your son is right. He doesn't have a problem. You could have mistaken their expression for a snapshot. i imagine their jaws were dropped. They stared at me in disbelief for a full minute. Finally, the father said, Did I hear you right? You don't think he has a problem? Correct, I said. He doesn't have a problem. You do. He can do pretty much whatever he wants, no problem. You pay, you fret, you worry, you plan, you exert energy to keep him going. He doesn't have a problem because you've taken it from him. Those things should be his problem, but as it stands now, now they are yours. And I love this last statement, you might remember he says, would you like for me to help him to have some problems? I know that is so contrary. I have never said that to anyone in my life. But I think God has said that to me a lot. Because I, I, I am that way. I want to I alleviate people's problems. Uh, and sometimes you do that without discretion. And you may be removing the very thing that God has put there to deal with them. So now that brings us to our last point. We're not only responsible for our actions, we're responsible for our actions no matter what others do. And then finally, we're responsible for our actions no matter what others should do. This has to do with expectations. Go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Again, a familiar story to many of you. And uh, what a precious story that I hope you can relate to if you need to, if you need it. Luke Chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 10. So there, Mary and Martha, sisters living in the same house, they invite guests over, and Jesus is one of the guests, and there's just a lot to be done. You ever have people over? It can be burdensome. I mean, you've got to get everything ready. You've got to make sure everything's in place. And, you know, all hands on deck, you know, you need somebody to set the table, set the chairs. You need somebody to put the food out. You need somebody to make sure everything's clean, last minute cleanup. Make sure there's enough stuff. I mean, there's just so much to do. And all of a sudden, here we have... Uh, Mar- uh, Martha is just going beside herself. You know, she's overwhelmed. Now she's serving. She's got a servant's heart. Is that a good thing? Yeah. But all of a sudden, in the midst of the frenzy with people are here, Jesus is here, the main guest. And all of a sudden, her eyes stop. She probably does a double take. I cannot believe what my eyes see. There's my sister sitting at Jesus' feet doing Nothing in her mind, right? What's she thinking? She's thinking there is so much to be done, and she is fuming. You know, maybe she waited, uh, you know, like a half an hour as the steam built up, and all of a sudden she couldn't take it anymore. And so, in verse forty, Luke ten and verse forty, but Martha was cumbered about with much serving, and she said, "And let me get there." because I I deleted something accidentally. All right, chapter, uh, verse 40. Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him, that's Jesus, and said, Lord, dost thou thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? So Mary, uh, Mary was helping, right? But Martha was abandoned. She was abandoned, right? And now she says to Jesus, don't you care that my sister left me to serve alone? Can you imagine? I just—I was thinking about this. You know, this is kind of the act of imagination. Can you imagine if Jesus said to her, Nope, I don't care. You know, can you imagine that? That wouldn't have helped her, you know. But what happens? She says, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. She had some expectations. In her mind, it's only fair. So, and of course, she's certain Jesus is going to say, Okay, you know what? It's my fault. Martha, or Mary, why don't you go help your sister and you can come back after? You know, doesn't that sound like something? But what did Jesus say? Verse 41 Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. By the way, if she was not teachable, that would have that would have been a that'd be very offensive, wouldn't it? How dare you? But, but she respected the Lord, and, and you know, sometimes some of us need to hear that. We get so focused on what others should be doing, and and then that distracts us. Another example, in, and uh, we won't turn there, but in John chapter 21, Jesus is really putting the pressure on Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Second time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Third time. Even changing the word to a more intense word. Peter, do you love me? Yes. And then, he, then Jesus prophesies what's going to happen to him. He's going to be carried upside down, you know, his... his Peter would die in a somewhat similar fashion. And all of a sudden, I, I think the way I read it is, you know, Peter's a little uncomfortable and he's looking around. You ever try to do that? Change, change the, Well, um, oh, this is uncomfortable. Let's change the subject, you know? How about them fillies or something like that? And, and he looks over and sees John and he says, well, what about that guy? What's going to happen to that guy? What, what will that man do? And Jesus, just like with Mary and Martha, he said, because he's talking about how he's going to end his life and all, how Peter's going to be required to give up his life, and and now he's thinking, okay, well, what about John? If I if I'm going to do it, what about John? And, and Jesus said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. In other words, forget, just forget about what other people aren't doing or supposed to do. Just focus on following me. And you and I need to do the same thing. I want to close with this. This is kind of like a bill problem. When I when I first started. Uh, ministry in Lancaster. Uh, I told you about the older man. In his 90's that played. The fiddle or the violin. For the silent movies. That was his profession. <laughs> he's the one, first one. In fact he's the only one that ever called me Parson. And it, he used it. With the utmost respect. I loved being a Parson. For three years. It was wonderful. And uh, his family. Uh, he had a. His wife, in fact, his wife was the grandmother. Uh, they had a daughter, and uh, she was married, remarried, and then they had a granddaughter. And the grandmother died. Now, I think this was after my violin player Richard died. And then, and so the, the granddaughter was apparently a problem child and was living with the grandmother because the parents, the mother, and the stepfather had tried endlessly and could not control this person she would not follow the rules and they eventually kicked her out and of course the grandmother ever bleeding grandmother says oh we'll take you in and now the grandmother died and this little this young lady who was really just a couple years younger than Mary and I at the time had no place to live and it was at her funeral the grandmother's funeral that we found out about this dilemma and it was kind of they were looking to us I think maybe this gal was looking to us like could you take me in and Mary, remember this, I touched base with Mary to make sure I got the facts right, because I often don't. And uh, she said, oh yeah, in fact, the mom and the stepfather pleaded with us not to take her. And, and, but here's what we thought. We are just what she needs. We are going to come in and we're going to fix her. That's what we're going to do. And so we said, sure, you come and stay. And uh, we, we set up some rules and at first she she understood those rules that they were necessary you know you can't go hanging out with your drunk drug, druggy friends um you got to go to church with us and you, you there was a curfew i think they, they were like the only rules Are we, is that harsh you know so we those were the rules and the first two weeks were beautiful she had almost been completely reformed in two weeks and then all of a sudden, she started hanging out later and going out and, and just totally snubbing our rules. She'd come in whenever she wanted to. She would do whatever she wanted to. And it was very, uh, it was tough. You know, we're newly married. And so we sat down. The, okay, listen, you got to be back by when we say, or we're going to kick you out. Okay, I promise. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. Next week, she does it again. All right, Listen. This time, we really mean, it. okay, I'm pro- we were finding out what her mom and stepfather had known all along and why they were pleading with us not to take her in. And I, I, I just remember, uh, and I'm more the bleeding heart, ready to get abused more than my wife is. But it got to the point where we had no choice. And so one of the times, we just put all her stuff out by the driveway. Isn't that mean? Now, you might think it's mean. But it's not. It's not. If we had continued to allow her to walk all over us, we would not be helping her. Now understand, you and I are answerable for ourselves. And how we respond, no matter what other people do. Now, it will affect how we respond. But you and I are answerable to God alone. Let let the chips fall where they may. We have to keep that in mind. Someday you and I will stand before God. Individual soul responsibility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us. Help us, Father, as we wrestle with different things and how to apply a message like this to our lives. We pray for wisdom. and pray that you'd help us to apply biblical principle and to realize, Father, that someday we'll give an answer to you. And that we need to let every man be fully persuaded in their own mind. We ask your blessing now, in Jesus' precious name, amen.